This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm your host, Rob Cox, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, we bring you a fascinating chat I had with Dr. Lloyd Miner, the dean of Stanford University's School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California. The main headline from our discussion is that Dean Miner's confident that somebody somewhere will find a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. That's good news. Research from various clinical trials is already starting to show enough promise to believe that disease can be vanquished by science. The bad news is that it's going to take a while, which is why he says we all need to get used to a new normal where this pandemic, or perhaps others, permanently change the way we live and behave. In addition, he sees some more permanent changes coming as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. One of them, for instance, is that we're at the infancy of telemedicine. While patients and doctors have had to distance as a result of the virus, Dean Miner thinks all of our homes will need to become more wired in the future to deliver information on our bodies in real time to our healthcare providers. Also, he thinks the crisis in the United States will bring back to the fore the question of universal health care coverage. With a presidential election looming in November, I think he's bang on about that one. So please enjoy my chat with Dean Miner of Stanford University. Dean Miner, great to see you. Um, I'm curious, you know, you are there in Stanford at, at the medical school. You would have lots of input, lots of information um, that can help us understand where we are and the trajectory of, of COVID-19. But I'm curious, how did it all begin for you? Like, when did you realize that we were dealing with a pandemic um, of this scale? Well, thank you, Rob. It's good to be with you. I first realized we were dealing with a pandemic and that it was going to have a real effect on everything we're doing. Early in the morning of March the 6th, I got a call from our chief medical officer saying that one of our faculty members had tested positive for the virus and that this faculty member was having respiratory difficulties and was going to be admitted to our hospital. Now, the reason we could do that test and make that diagnosis is just a few days earlier on March the 2nd, we were one of the first institutions in the country to receive FDA emergency use authorization for our diagnostic test for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, a so-called RT-PCR test. And upon receiving that authorization from the FDA, we began immediately to scale the test, start testing people who were symptomatic, and then um, uh, found, obviously, that a member of our community was positive, and, and also then very shortly thereafter that multiple people we were testing were positive. And how did this, I'm just curious, is he, he or she okay? Yes. Yes. That's good. Chris is doing doing really well now and as and has recovered. Uh, but it's a it's a very sobering disease. It is in many patients a serious disease. And what's so humbling to me is about as a biomedical expert is we have so little understanding of this virus 
and so little understanding of the immune response to the virus. And that points out the need for a lot more research and for translating that research into clinical care as quickly as we can. As we began to see more and more patients quickly over the course of, you know, a couple, then eight or nine, then not two or three patients in the hospital, uh, but eight, 10, 12 patients and more in the hospital. And our modelers, our epidemiology modelers began to show what exponential growth really looks like, and it's scary. Uh, we began to prepare for uh, a massive surge in patients. We um, stopped all elective procedures uh, as we were directed to do by the state and our regional authorities. We also deferred on anything other than very urgent care. We moved most of our outpatient visits to telehealth, and perhaps we can talk more about that in a moment. Yeah. And uh, fortunately here, we just opened a new hospital on our campus in November of last year. But our original hospital is still here and still functional. We had decommissioned some of the units when we opened the new hospital, but we brought those back online in March. We were this in San Francisco, or is it Palo Alto? Both in Palo Alto. That's where our, our main campus is. Yeah. We're on the campus of Stanford University. Uh, we have both an adult and children's hospital here on our campus. Uh, we began to prepare for moving from about 80 ICU beds to, to roughly 200 or so uh, for adding several hundred acute care beds uh, to take care of patients who uh, were sick with COVID-19. Now, fortunately, we didn't experience that level of a surge, probably because we went to shelter in place in, in Northern California earlier than most of the country. And even prior to our local and state ordinances requiring shelter in place and social distancing, even prior to that, the technology firms had sent their workforce home. And what we know in how epidemics spread at the early stages is those first few days are absolutely critical in terms of preventing the massive surge a couple of weeks or more later. And having done that, um, and maybe also helped by the fact that we have such poor mass transit, public mass transit systems in Northern California. Everyone's in their cars on the- uh, <laughs> Exactly. Um, we didn't see the massive surge. And, um, which you saw in New York, for instance. Which we saw very tragically in New York. And the other lesson in all of this, and it's a, it's a good lesson as we look at, well, what are the next steps for all of us? One thing we have to prevent is healthcare delivery systems becoming overwhelmed. When the delivery systems become overwhelmed, when there are no ICU beds, when people are sharing, when patients, critically ill patients are having to share ventilators, that's when the mortality rate skyrockets. If we can allow healthcare delivery systems like ours to perform at their best, and, and I am so proud of our people here at Stanford for the care we've delivered, the research we're doing, the dedication of this workforce. You know, the call-ins for people calling in sick from our nurses, from our medical assistants, the call-ins during the COVID-19 pandemic have been less less than they were before the pandemic. That gives you an indication That's amazing. of the extraordinary dedication of healthcare professionals. So if we can let them do their jobs, let us do our jobs without becoming overwhelmed, we can take care of people with this disease. So that's, that's one thing moving forward is how do we prevent uh, the type of disastrous situations we saw in New York, we saw in Italy, and how do we make sure as we now move from 
you know, closing down elective activities to bringing them back on board? Where or you've, have you now brought back things like cancer, whatever treatments? Uh, We've know, brought back deferred surgeries. That's right. And this week we're probably at about ninety percent of our pre-COVID uh, levels of activity in elective surgeries. Uh, we're not quite at that level in terms of uh, clinic visits and, and sort of the deferred care, but it's, it's increasing steadily. Uh, and what we know is that, that the need for that care didn't go away when COVID-19 started, it just got deferred. And if it continues to be deferred, then we can predict that three months, six months down the road, we're gonna see well, a lot more- Other problems. Right. And we've also tried to get the message out uh, Rob, that, that we're safe, that this is a safe delivery system. And we've done that in several ways. First, we, we tested our, our healthcare workforce. Everyone was offered COVID-19 testing, the RT-PCR, uh, and they were also offered antibody testing. And what we found is among asymptomatic healthcare workers, the incidence of the virus as tested by the RT-PCR test, the incidence of the virus is very low. It's about 0.3%. What it says is that there are some people who are asymptomatic and infected, but they're very rare. And of course, when we identify those cases, they're, they're quarantined and, and we make sure they get the care they deliver. But wearing you know, masks in the healthcare delivery setting, having the PPE needed to take care of people who are infected with, co with the SARS-CoV-2 virus or who maybe have a suspicion of being infected, having all of that in place makes our delivery system very, very safe. And we've shown, as have other places, that when our healthcare workers wear the PPE in the way it's designed to be worn, and we do a lot to make sure that's the case and have adequate supplies, when PPE is worn the way it should be worn, we have not documented a, a transmission of the virus from uh, a patient to a healthcare worker that right. when adequate uh, PPE is so what, being- How does one extrapolate that to what we should all be doing out in the world? I think as we move now into what we describe as R3, recover, restore, reopen. Recover in that, in the deliveries, and for healthcare, how do we get back to delivering healthcare? Uh, and then restore, how do we restore the systems, not only in healthcare, but restore activities more broadly in society. That means gradually beginning to open up businesses. It means, uh, it means looking at some of the social distancing requirements and how those get applied then as we return into workplaces. So for example, masking, just a regular mask, just a mask that, that you can make at home with the instructions you can get from a, a website right. or YouTube. Right. Video. YouTube or whatever, right. yeah. Uh, that, that, that helps, that helps. Uh, because this virus principally is transmitted in droplets, coughing, sneezing. That's the principal mode of transmission of the virus. And anything we do that blocks the droplets lowers the risk of infection. Uh, so masking, uh, I think as we return to the work environment, that's going to be an important thing to do in many places. Social distancing in the workplace, uh, six feet apart from each other at least looking carefully also at places where people assemble, lunch rooms, yeah. care in restrooms. Every detail is gonna matter. But we also know that as we start to reopen, given that we don't have mass immunity in the population, 
as we start to reopen things and, and relax some of the social distancing and relax some of the shelter in place guidelines, we are going to see new cases. We're almost yeah. certainly going to see an increase in new cases. Yeah, how do you, how do you, what's your view on, I mean, sort of reopening the third R, I guess, and, and do you, you know, your sense of, I mean, every state is doing a bit differently. You can give us your perspective on California, of course, being there, but in general, do you think we're setting ourselves up for wave, a, a second wave that, that then throws us back into sort of the same, similar sort of conundrum that we had with the first shutdowns and lockdowns or even a third phase? I mean, what's your, how do you see it playing out? As we have learned from the, the antibody testing we've done here, and we developed a very sensitive and specific test, it's called an ELISA-based test. It's of the overall number of people that we have tested, only in the neighborhood of one to 2% have an antibody response to this virus that's far too low to confer yeah. any sort of mass immunity. And until we have mass immunity, either from a vaccine or from people who've been infected and develop immunity, until we have mass immunity, the virus is still going to be with us. Therefore, taking these precautions on, on spread is going to be important. Um, another area of importance, in addition to vaccine development, is until we get a vaccine, how do we treat people who are infected before they get so sick that they have to go into the hospital? Right. We're focused on a number of outpatient clinical trials to identify antivirals that could be given, offered to people at the time of diagnosis. Something like the drug that's called Tamiflu that mm -hmm. has been shown in many cases to be effective at shortening the duration and the severity of seasonal influenza if it's given you know, within a time period. Could we identify something like that for the SARS-CoV-2 virus? We have one clinical trial up and running with a drug called Lambda Interferon. We have a couple of others that are before the FDA now where we've requested IND approval to move forward with the trials. But I think the new normal will be greatly helped if we have identified effective outpatient therapies that help people who are infected to recover more quickly and safely at home. That's another right. area of emphasis. Now, if I, I mean, none of the treatments that, um, that have gone, you know, that it seemed to be likely to be used soon, whether they're drugs like remdesivir or, you know, therapies like plasma, none of them though seem to be like, you know, magic bullets. I guess I'm just wondering, do they need to be, or, or are there sort of several options that can improve outcomes for some, if not all patients, that will at least allow us to make, you know, sort of manage the crisis, if not entirely, you know, solve it? I think we have to explore every option we can. Vaccine development's very, very important. I'm encouraged that there are over a hundred different vaccines in development. The results reported earlier this week from Moderna on the RNA vaccine and, and the phase one trial in eight otherwise healthy individuals were encouraging and that it's safe. And also they mounted an, a neutralizing antibody response. That's very important. Vaccine, a focus on vaccines is important. In parallel, a focus on identifying effective antivirals, both in the outpatient setting and the inpatient setting is important. We need to have as many shots on goal as we can have. Yeah. 
uh, yeah. for, for combating this virus. Is there a way to, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, uh, the Moderna stuff this week, um, I'm just wondering, is there like, do you think, how do you think new information about the disease or itself or, or clinical trials should be disclosed to the public? I mean, you, you know, it's all now a bit of a patchwork and, you know, certainly if you listen to the president's briefing, you might realize, think one day it's okay to start your bleach uh, treatments. Um, and then, you know, then you get the, the, the Wall Street, which is always, in an, always interested in drumming up good news on, on some of these things. I mean, is there sort of like, what's the right way for the public to be informed about these things? Well, I'm, I'm a staunch believer in peer review. I think that that's helped to protect the integrity and veracity of the scientific enterprise. There's also a need, though, for transmitting information rapidly. And there is a place for open types of review that, that we've seen recently, that is for putting results out uh, for the public to examine and then the public discourse opine on what those results mean or what they may not mean. In this particular case, given the magnitude of the impact of COVID-19 though, I think it's really, really important that we view everything with a critical eye, with, with an eye towards um, considering all the options and an objective eye. There is such a need and a desire um, to find positive aspects of how we're gonna move forward, how we're gonna get out of this situation. I think we all have that desire, but we also sure. wanna be very, very careful uh, that we don't uh, put out information that's false or that misleads people Certainly, we don't want to put out information that actually harms people. Right. I mean, one of the things that you you know that characterizes our political discourse, not just in America, I mean, all over the world. I'm I'm coming to you in, from Switzerland, for instance. Is just there is this sort of we all want the quick and easy. The vaccine is this sort of holy grail, right? It's we get there, it's done, move on back to normal. You think there is maybe the U.S. or or other we we as generally as society are overstressing technology. And, you know, in, in trying to handle that to, to be the answer here, rather than sort of, I don't know, thinking about older useful methods like contract, contact tracing or um, other things. We certainly good old good old fashioned pandemic, uh, you know, epidemiology, right? Yeah, around yeah. more than a century. I, I think we need both. We absolutely need more effective um, methods of contact tracing, and we need to scale up testing. I mean, the new normal is going to involve uh, us using symptom trackers, uh, frequent temperature checks, uh, and, and readily, ready availability of testing with, uh, you know, when there's the least indication that, uh, that there might be a symptom. And then for those people who are positive, uh, hopefully getting them antiviral therapy, isolation, and then tracing the contacts. That's the way Prior to uh, you know the modern age of biomedicine, over the past seventy plus years, when we've actually had therapies, that's the way epidemics were controlled in the past. And right, uh, right. we're going to have to not abandon those tried and true tried and true methods. They just seem to there's so there's so much there's quite a bit of at least maybe this view that it is an infringement upon freedoms and things like that and privacy. I don't know how we get over that. You know, you look at the the, the Apple. Google contact tracing, you know, debate over whether to use that. And this whole idea that, oh, this is just a new way for a, a surveillance society to take, take hold. Um, 
how do you think we're dealing with that from a philosophical or moral perspective? As you indicate, it's a matter of, of weighing uh, the consequences and the options and individual freedom versus the, or in comparison to a broader societal need. And, and that's playing out in real time in very real ways in, in COVID-19. I think each, you know, each society is going to weigh those options differently. Uh, but I think in order to safely move towards reopening some things, we're going to have to have much better contact tracing uh, than we have today until we get a vaccine or until we have really, really, really effective antivirals. You know, we'll point out that we're 35 plus years into the HIV pandemic and we do not have a vaccine, but we do have highly effective antivirals that have transformed HIV from being 100% fatal disease to now being a disease that in most people is a successfully managed chronic disease that has little or no impact on their overall life expectancy. And we can even prevent infection right. in cases. Now, I'm more optimistic about a vaccine and SARS-CoV-2 because what we've seen is many people do mount a robust antibody response. We don't know in every case that those antibodies are protective, but in many cases where, we, where the neutralizing, so-called neutralizing assay has been done, they have been proven to be effective. We have seen anecdotally that convalescent serum harvested from people who've been infected and recovered and developed an antibody response. Anecdotally, that that's beneficial in helping people recover who are infected, and there's a clinical trial going on with that. All of that provides evidence that the immune system reacts to this virus, and therefore we should be able to develop a vaccine right. that activates the immune system. So it doesn't tell us you can't do it. It does. It's not, yeah, yeah, I get that. It, it, it tells you there's the possibility. We just have to find the route there. That's right. Yeah. And how do you think, just in general, how do you think this is going to change medicine? I mean, you know, that's a big question, of course. I mean, you can think back to SARS in 2003. It certainly changed the way, I don't know if you had a fever, you went into a, um, to a clinic in Hong Kong, you didn't go through the front door of the hospital. I mean, there are various little things like that that are huge or the use of masks. But I'm just wondering how you think, you know, in five years from now, let's assume we've got this under control in some way, if not a vaccine, at least handled it um, in some way. What, how, do, how does the medical system look differently than it does today? One thing that I think has become very obvious to us here at Stanford and, and, and across the country around the world is we can do a lot with telehealth visits that we never imagined we could do. We moved from, in the month of February, we did in our adult delivery system, roughly a thousand virtual visits during the entire month. And by early April, we were doing over 3,000 virtual visits a day in our delivery system. At one point, 73% of the outpatient visits in our adult healthcare delivery system were done virtually. Now, that's begun to decline as we brought back open our in-person clinics, and we're now maybe in the 60% range. But I hope we don't go back to the 5 6 7% of visits being done telehealth-wise, right. because I think we're discovering we can deliver outstanding care in many, not all, in many cases with telehealth. 
And I think we're still in the infancy of what telehealth can do. It's a right now the the technology is still fairly primitive compared to other technologies. And we do a video visit, that's good. You can learn a lot from that. But how do we think about equipping the home to be a place that promotes health and well-being? Being able to easily measure things like blood pressure and, and other things in the home, yeah. have that communicated to the delivery system. There's a lot more we can and should do with, with leveraging telehealth. So that's one way I think um, healthcare delivery will change. The other thing, and as many people I think have seen the 2015 TED talk that Bill Gates gave, where he predicted exactly what we're going through today. And uh, it's such an accurate and chilling vision of the present five years ago. We we really have to take this seriously now focus a lot more attention on emerging infectious diseases, focus a lot more attention on methods of vaccine development. Uh, one of the vaccines that's entering clinical trials, you know, coming out of Oxford, got into clinical trials for SARS-CoV-2 so quickly because they've been working on a MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, right. a very close relative of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Right. They could change a few things and, and have it in, in clinical trials for SARS-CoV-2 need a lot more emphasis on the science of, of emerging infectious diseases and vaccine development. After SARS-1, you know, there, there had begun to be activities towards development of a SARS-1 vaccine, but then those fell off the radar when SARS-1 disappeared, and we're still not quite sure why it did, uh, right. but it didn't spread nearly as widely as SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but, but our interest in and support of vaccine development for these coronaviruses really waned after uh, SARS-1 uh, outbreak uh, receded. And we can't let that happen now. We have to keep a lot more focus on the science surrounding these infectious diseases. And fortunately, we're, we're equipped to do that today. And what, and what about the system itself? I mean, one of the things that, you know, we now have millions more of Americans um, who are out of work, means they're going to lose their health care. We're still having this debate in, in the United States, which um, is bewildering to people outside of the United States in developed countries and prosperous ones like the one I'm looking out upon right here in Switzerland, um, where, you know, we where so many people don't have access, where their job is their only, is there really the way they get access through health insurance? Do you think we're gonna have a, this will also bring up a bigger question about how we, whether we go to a single payer system in the United States or create some sort of universal healthcare system? And how do you think that, that sort of philosophical and political debate will, will uh, transpire as a result of this? Yes, I believe that COVID-19 is going to, uh, renew an interest in and focus on how we deliver, how we pay for healthcare in the United States. It also, I think COVID-19 will draw much greater attention to the disparities in healthcare. Yeah. Look at the communities, the socioeconomic and racial groups that have been disproportionately affected by this virus. It's been the African-American community, the Hispanic community. Look, you know, even before COVID-19, a sad fact in the United States 
is that zip code is a better predictor of life expectancy than genetic code. And if you look at the mortality statistics for COVID-19, it is exactly tracked that sad reality. You know, we have to do better than that in this country. And, and I think the, uh, the stark realities of how COVID-19 has affected different groups in different ways really cause us to rethink uh, our approach to health and healthcare delivery. Yeah, I mean, you think you're sort of getting at preventative medicine more than in some of these cases. So zip code means essentially are people, are their diets appropriate? Are they exercise? I mean, right down to the, the resiliency of their bodies to fight these kinds of infectious diseases, isn't it? That's exactly right. And, and prior to this pandemic, and the book was released in March, uh, quietly because there's been so, much other thing, so many other things going on, but I, I wrote a book on our vision for precision health, the, our vision here at Stanford Medicine for precision health. It focuses on predict, prevent, and cure precisely, but with a heavy emphasis on prediction and prevention. And one of the, um, one of the chapters in that book looks at the social, environmental, and behavioral determinants of health. And we know, even prior to COVID-19, 70% of the determinants of health are social, behavioral, and environmental. Only 30% of the determinants of our health, our, our life expectancy, only 30% are related to the health care, the, the medical care we receive in our genetics. And yet, in the United States, we have focused most of our attention, most of our research dollars and our delivery system dollars on that 30% of the pie, namely medical care and genetics. And I'm not saying we should back away from that, and, and a lot of our ability to respond as quickly as we have to SARS-CoV-2 has come from that infrastructure, that biomedical infrastructure we've right. built. But we've got to address much more attention to those social, behavioral, environmental determinants, first to understand them and then how to impact them. And I'm really pleased that that's also a dialogue we're having at the university level here at Stanford looking forward is how can we leverage the resources of this great research university to have an impact on understanding those social behavioral environmental determinants, the disparities, and then ultimately from the policy work that we're informing and from our own engagement with our communities, how can we have impact on those disparities? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Now, before I let you go, I just want to get your, your view on, okay, you don't have to give me your view on how Donald Trump has handled this. I mean, because it's not even worth raising. But I'd be curious to know if you look around the world uh, or even states, think where are some good examples of leadership and you know, coordination and that might be good models for, for us for future pandemics? I believe there are a lot of countries and municipalities that are offering us information, data that we need to analyze carefully over the weeks and months ahead so that we are better prepared in the future. For example, uh, at least early on, Hong Kong uh, was effective at, uh, at having a very low instance of the virus. Now, they've had a few bumps, but, but that's to be expected. Um, a lot of reporting early on from South Korea as well, and, um, and, and some of the early data on testing and, and what a positive RT-PCR means and, and how virus particles 
or portions of a virus that may not be infectious can persist over time. We're getting data from lots of different places. I'm also watching very carefully, and I think the jury is still out, and watching very carefully what's going on in Sweden. Um, and it's going to take a while to know if, if that strategy is effective. And of course, each country differs in terms of the demography of, of, of the people in the country, and, and that can very have profound impact on the epidemiology and how the virus spreads. But I think we're all learning in real time. Uh, certainly in the United States, and as we're thinking moving forward and the possibility, the possibility of a second wave, uh, we, we were not prepared in testing in the United States. I think that's clear. We, um, we also weren't prepared in terms of what we thought would be our acute care needs. And in some places they were our acute care needs like in New York. I think now we, we have better testing. We still need a lot more testing. We're certainly much better prepared in the acute care setting. We've learned a lot over these past two and a half, three months about how to take care of critically ill patients with COVID-19. And we're much better at doing it today than we were two and a half months ago. I feel you know, reassured by that, but I still think our ultimately our going towards reopening and this R3 process of recover, restore, reopen is going to be a process that's with us for many, many months. And it's gonna to continue to alter our lives in ways that we really wish it didn't. But it's going to have to in order for us to stay safe and start resuming some of the things that we need and want to resume. Yeah, yeah, well, good. Um, final question, should I drink Clorox? <laughs> I don't think you should drink Clorox, no. Uh, <laughs> but you should wash your hands frequently. Uh, wear a mask when you're in social settings. Uh, and in general, observe the type of hygiene recommendations that the CDC and other organizations have been very effective at, um, at disseminating. I'm doing my best. It's quite funny here in Switzerland, which is a little bit further along in the, the final R, the reopening. I mean, uh, just you'd almost think it was just start. It, nothing had happened. I mean, people are just out. I've, you don't see masks really the way um, the way you do in New York or London. Um, be interesting to watch. I mean, two, three yes. weeks from now, I suppose, right? That's exactly right. And um, underscores how, how much more we have to learn about this virus and about uh, the pandemic it's caused. Yeah. Well, look, Dean Miner, thank you very much for your thank time. You. It's great being with I appreciate you. appreciate it. Keep healthy out there and keep, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, it sounds like we're going to be um, needing your advice for many years to come. Well, I'm happy to stay in touch. Thanks a lot. That's it for now. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and a beat This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols.
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.